Our second reading is from the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all here of us alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. The word of the Lord. Let me reread the very first couple verses of the commandments here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. We read, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. We're in our series on the Ten Commandments. Last week, we started on the first commandment, but we really could tie the two together. In some denominations, the first and second are the ones I just read, and another, other denominations, they're combined as one, uh, one command. And really, they go together. No gods, no idols. No gods, no idols. We're going to take a little bit of time to look at this this morning. My aim is to uncover the idea of the idols of our heart, the other things that we can worship instead of God, and probably not to get to the solution. How do we undo the idols of our heart? So diagnosis rather than surgery today. In the ancient Near East, um, God is writing to a group of people who are coming out of Egypt, right? And he's giving them commands to live and follow him in the midst of a culture and a world around them that did not believe in him. Instead, they believed in multiple gods. That ancient world had a multiplicity of local deities. Sometimes the deities were tied to a a nation or even a city, 
and they all had local jurisdiction, things that they were responsible for. So here's how it played out. In Egypt, those of you who went through elementary school around here, eventually at one point you learned about the gods of the Egyptians. Hapi, or Happy, the Nile, later on called, was one of the things that was worshipped because it was the source of food and of sustenance for the ancient Egyptian culture. And one of the reasons why God's uh, 10 plagues were actually judgments on the, the gods of the Egyptians. The blood, the Nile turned to blood. God shows, I am Lord over these things. Don't worship this deity. When Israel ends up in Canaan, which they're about to do in Deuteronomy, there's a couple of other gods they face. Baal is continually being brought up. Baal was a god of agriculture. And in the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, they worshiped this god that would provide the rain and bring the crops up. But if you went to the west, to where the Mediterranean was, the Philistines had their own god, which you can read about in some of the stories involving the judges or David. The Philistines had a god called Dagon that was half fish, half man, and the Philistines were fishermen. So their god, the god of the sea, was the one who provided the fish to the fishermen, right? It sort of makes sense. The Greeks had a whole system of gods, so did the Romans. Aphrodite, beauty, sex, pleasure. And sometimes they were localized, like Artemis was the god of the Ephesians. And some of the outrage that happens in Acts with Paul in the conversions are related to the fact that people were no longer buying god of Artemis any longer. So that ancient system that God is talking about here when he says no gods, no idols, was an ancient system where every location had temples that you went to and worshipped, and you offered sacrifices. And if you did that, then the God was obligated to act on your behalf, meeting your needs. Crops, a firstborn son, victory in war, whatever it was. Now for us, this is a big jump because we don't have temples for devotion. We don't have idols that we sacrifice to. Or do we? The idol question, which we've talked about here, is a worship question. What or who do you actually worship? And the argument is this. Everyone worships something. So if somebody tells me that they don't believe in God, I would say, well, everyone worships a God. A God is simply this. Whatever is most important to you, how you determine good, whatever has ultimate say in your life is your God. It's where you find your identity, your meaning, your purpose. It's where you set your hopes. James K.A. Smith, in a book that I quoted a few times last week, and it's going to be our third book in the book discussion, uh, churchwide book discussion series in August, he writes it talking about the human heart. He says, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate the question is what you will love as ultimate. In other words, it's not a question of whether you worship, but what you worship. We can't not worship because we can't not love something as ultimate. Agnostic author David Wallace, agnostic author David Foster Wallace, had his own version of the same thing when he said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, now this guy doesn't actually believe in the Christian God. He's just a thinker and a writer. 
In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. We are all, by nature, idolaters. Local deities were not just a problem in the ancient world, they're a human problem and a historic problem. We see this because no longer do we have a, necessarily a shrine the way we think about it with a God that we're bowing down to in some local place, but every culture, every culture that has ever existed spins out a whole set of priorities and aspirations that function like gods. They shape our personal narrative, they inform our way of thinking, and they build up our assumptions. Our wants and loves are shaped by our culture's deities. Let me give you one that maybe you've been affected by, that I have at least, being an American, materialism or consumerism. I, I may be the only one that's actually had any trouble with that one. So it's not Baal that you're bowing down to, it's not Dagon, this fish man thing, but consumerism, materialism, is something that is a cultural narrative of ours that I've inherited and live into. And I do it very easily. I don't even think about it. I just do it. I step into that. And if you look back over the course of a lifetime, you can see, if you've grown up in America, I, I've been shaped by ads, by peers, and by having access to money. All these things create this whole set of values and assumptions about life and what's good. And look, we live in a capitalist economy, the wealthiest of capitalist economies. And so here's the system that we live in. If you work, you merit getting paid. You've earned something, and therefore you deserve stuff, right? Better shoes than the ones you have on right now. A better car, a newer phone, there's always something that we're trying to get that will probably make us happy. Or to look like others. Or because hey, there was a great ad. Many of us have rooms in our house that have furniture that never even gets sat upon. Or we have closets full of clothes that almost never get worn. Sometimes these are the seasonal clothes thing. I actually tend to buy clothes that I can use on special occasions, and I don't mean like getting dressed up to go out. I mean for fun, like, oh, that'll be funny. Let me get that t-shirt. Oh, let me buy that hat. It's got the helicopter on top. There'll be a time when I want to wear it. I have an entire skit closet. <laughs> Why? Because I can. Think about how foreign that is if you're not from a Western capitalist, wealthy society. We buy into this idea that goods are a part of the goal. It's an implicit vision of the good life, of flourishing. You've made it when you can buy stuff. Now, I may question if I should buy a particular thing, those particular shoes, that particular new phone but I assume the right to buy it. I just do. And it's only when we leave the wealthy West or someone comes here 
is it possible that this can be seen as maybe an idol, something I worship without even being aware, a cultural local deity? Let's take something that's a little more pressing today besides materialism or consumerism, and this is one that many of us probably don't deal with explicitly, but let's look at how idolatry is underneath of racism. Okay, we were talking about that earlier. Beneath any racism is a worship of the wrong thing. So Soledad O'Brien, a journalist at a Q conference talk, uh, cites a psychological study that says by age four, kids start grouping people and things by similarities. So by age four, a kid starts noticing external differences and grouping things, things like me or not like me. Noticing differences and even associating with those that are like us may actually not be a problem. It may just be a normal functional thing we do. But what happens when we elevate our differences or those become what keep us in place? If your social position or economic prosperity are tied to your ethnicity, and you don't even know it. Or if your caste or skin color is the main source of your identity and worth. That version of superiority is what skewed a version of Christianity that was held onto for hundreds of years here in America, where the Bible was read through the lens of what will keep me where I am. If in any way my ethnicity, my race, is a source of my meaning and identity, I can begin to see others as less than, not just different, less than. And I'll do whatever I can for them to remain so. At a minimum, people who, you know, like us, who probably aren't like Jim Crow racists, need to be aware of just how little we care if it's not our community. That, that fundamental indifference because, well, it's not here, is in and of itself a devaluing of human life and an elevating of my happiness. That's their problem. That violence, those issues, that's their problem. But what am I saying implicitly by thinking that way? You know, it's some of the things that Paul confronted with Peter in the Jew-Gentile divide. Often we think of the Jewish-Gentile divide in that ancient world as a religious one. The Jews believed in God, the Gentiles didn't. But by Jesus' day, it was actually primarily a racist issue. The Jewish people thought they were superior by being ethnically Jews. God had called them to be a light to the nations, but they took their calling as God's people to differentiate themselves and say, we're called, you're not. To the point where Peter, even after he'd come to faith in the gospel, carried this on. In one particular instance, he wasn't willing to eat with Gentiles because it's going to look bad. And Paul confronts him. That is anti the gospel. You've been saved by grace, not your Jewishness. Even the wealth and the success that many of us have had while it may look externally like things we have done, even that is a gift from God. We have no choice in how we were born. 
And understanding that grace should challenge us and how we extend love and grace and mercy to everyone else. So the race problem in our country is a sin issue at its root. And it's a sin issue that's really a worship of a false god issue. Another one that's coming up today, especially in our culture today, is political party as Messiah, or political candidate as Antichrist. I can't decide which one it is. So it's one thing to vote for a candidate, work for a party, or really believe in your side's issues. That's, those are actually all good things, a part of a democracy. Many of you make your living working for a particular party. You advocate for it. There's, there's causes you're very, very dear to you. And so a particular candidate or particular party backs up things that you think are very true. And that's good. We're called to do that. But we have to be aware at all times, that there is a, a draw to see a party or a candidate as the center of hope for this world. And what happens when that happens, it, it plays out in fear. If my party or my candidate doesn't win, we experience a death. It's the end. Might as well move. And we don't just see opponents, people on the other side, people who watch that cable news channel and not the one I watch, we don't just see them as wrong or mistaken. We see them as evil. When we elevate party, we have a tendency to literally demonize somebody else. Our particular candidate is the Christ, and the other one is the Antichrist. And I'm not saying that's where you all are or where I am, but here's the question to ask. If you fear where the country's headed, if, if your fear of where the country's headed outweighs your hope and trust in the sovereignty of God, it's possible something besides God is your sovereign. Here's the deal. Every culture that has ever existed stands condemned under the first and second commandment. Every culture that's ever existed. And so each of us as individuals need to allow our assumptions and even our primary allegiances to be questioned and challenged. And so I'm going to ask a question like this, and it's, I'm going to be careful how I say this, so hear what I'm actually saying. Is my primary devotion to God and his kingdom or to America, or capitalism, or people like me. Now, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't like America, or that capitalism isn't better than socialism, or that it's wrong to associate with people like you. But is my primary devotion to God and his kingdom? The most local deity is not just these cultural things, it's our own personalized and private religion. This was made famous by Sheila Larson, as quoted in Robert Bella's 1985 book, Habits of the Heart. Sheila said this when asked about her own religion. She said, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. Then she goes on to explain, my faith has carried me a long way. Faith in what? Well, I guess it's Sheilaism. 
just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself and, you know, take care of each other. Sheila believed in God, one that she had crafted from her own experience and assumptions. And that's a tendency that we all have. It's to make God in our own image. I've been in conversations with many people who always say, who say things like, I like to think of God as, and then they fill in the blank with their own set of adjectives. Pastor Philip Ryken wrote, we are tempted to worship God the way we want him to be rather than as he actually is. We tend to emphasize the things that God the things about God that we like and minimize the rest. And we all have a tendency to do this, to make up our own religion, Christianity in my image, the commands that I like, not the ones I don't, the aspects of God that I think feel nice and ignore the ones that I don't really feel comfortable with. But the thing about the Christian God, the, the creator, savior, Lord God that we talk about every week here, he is a self revealing God. His nature and his acts, his commands, his call on our life, and his way of salvation aren't up to us. And the thing is this, the all or nothingness of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, continues with Jesus. It's the same God. Jesus is the one who told the disciples, leave everything and come follow me. Drop everything and come follow me. And they dropped their career. They left family. He challenged them to leave their pocketbooks. Leave everything and follow me. And we know this to be true, that anything can be an object of worship. Anything can be a God to us. Or can, it, it, even if it's not our primary God, you know, we, we really do believe in Jesus, there are things that are constantly competing for the throne of our heart constantly a source of wanting to worship them alongside of God. What is it that you find your purpose and identity in? What is a functional savior to you? Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods put it this way, an idol is anything you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Anything can be an idol. Sex, money, food, kids, career, marriage, even your own religiousness and goodness. Gavin Peacock was a 1980s Premier League soccer player. Looking back on his soccer career, he said, soccer was my God. If I played well on Saturday, I was high. If I played poorly, I was low. My sense of well-being depended entirely on my performance. If we're looking to identify if we have other gods, our Idols can often be located in our thoughts. What do you daydream about? What are your nightmares? What is it that you're longing for? When your mind is free to wander, what do you think about? Getting into college, making it in your career, getting married? What's your greatest nightmare? Losing your job? Being left out by the inner circle? ignored or underappreciated by your friends? What do you love? What do you want most? Because there may be your idols. 
Psychologist David Pallison said this, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? It is a question bearing on the immediate motivation for one's behavior, thoughts, and feelings. The motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior, the Lord or a substitute? What do we turn to besides God or alongside of him? Here's the thing that the Bible makes very clear, not just in the warnings that God gives in the commandments, is that all other gods enslave and disappoint. They will disappoint. Make your kids your God, they will fall short. Success, sex, they can't give you the ecstasy in heaven you're looking for. Everything we turn to besides God will disappoint because it's not weighty enough. It's not lasting enough. The satisfaction it gives is not enough to fulfill your need or mine. And all these things enslave us. I'm going to go back to a longer quote by David Foster Wallace, who again, an agnostic, but insightfully saw how the things we worship enslave us and bring us into fear and anxiety and self-focus in viciousness. He writes this, or said this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure. You will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. He goes on to say, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that what you're doing, that that's what you're doing. Everything else we turn to will disappoint or enslave. And yet we turn to things constantly. St. Augustine sought happiness and joy in every manner of life he could. His philosophy and his intellect, career ambition, he was very successful, and sex and pleasure. Later on, he came to faith in Christ. And years after that, he wrote the Confessions where he famously said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We are made for God and our hearts are constantly trying to love and worship something. But until they find their rest in God through Jesus Christ, we will be restless and dissatisfied or at worst enslaved. Let's pray. God, open our eyes to see the gods of our culture and the gods of our hearts where we have worshiped friends 
or family or career or control or sex, comfort. Expose to us, Lord, our false trusts and give us a heart for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.